Who's worthy of the table? Nobody. And that's the whole point. What is the sign of the supper? What is the sign of the table? The table is a sign for us in three ways. And these three ways come directly from the text. It is a sign for us by way of proclamation or declaration, by way of remembering or memorial, and by way of participation. Those are the three things that you you must get into your thinking about the table. The table is about proclamation or declaration. It's about a memorial or remembering, and it's about participation. All three things are there from the text. Jesus says to us, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So clearly Jesus is saying this is a memorial. This is an opportunity to remember, to call to mind. Secondly, it's it's about a proclamation because we're told as often as we eat and drink, we do what? We proclaim the Lord's death until He returns. Okay, so there it is clearly from the text. We proclaim or we declare. And then thirdly, we participate because as often as we do this, we proclaim His death until He returns. So we're doing it, we're participating, we're active, but we're also remembering and we're also proclaiming. So first of all, that, that proclaiming, this a declaration. Who are we proclaiming to? Because you know we don't have glass walls here and spectators walking by, looking in, saying, what is that they're eating? Those little bitty tiny cups, what is that they're doing? We proclaim to those among us what this is all about, those who might come among us. So the supper, the table of the Lord, is not some sort of secretive, cultic kind of activity. The the early church sort of got that reputation of behind closed doors, drinking people's blood and eating people's body parts. And you can kind of see how the misunderstanding came about. But the early church got that misunderstanding Because it was thought of as this sort of secretive sort of thing. It's not a secretive thing at all. It's the opposite. It's a proclaiming thing. It's a declaring thing. We wish the whole world could watch us partake. And if those are among us who are not partakers in the table, then there is to be no discomfort at all. We're glad that you see this, that you watch this, because this is about proclaiming something. This is about declaring something. It's also about remembering something, a memorial. Now, none of us were there at the cross to think back into our recollection and remember those events. But nonetheless, it is a focusing of the mind on those events and what those events mean for us and teach to us. So so the supper is not a time of just turning your brain off. The supper is not this mystic, emotional kind of thing where where you just receive this mystical, magical thing in you. I I know of many who would think of the table in that way, that something mystical is happening, something inexplicable is happening. And of course, we know that there are those who believe that something miraculous happens with with the elements, with the bread and with, with the cup, and they actually become a body and they become the blood of Christ. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, 
other than just, just to say this, without spending a great deal of time there, that just defies all common sense, doesn't it? That just defines all common sense to say that something that still looks like bread, smells like bread, feels like bread, tastes like bread, somehow is not bread, but now it's the body of our Lord who, by the way, is with the Father right now, with His body. That just defies all sort of realism. Okay, Again, we're confusing, within that system of thought, we're confusing two things. The sign and the reality the sign points to. So, these aren't some sort of mystical pieces of bread. It's not some sort of mystical liquid. And nothing mystical happens to you. Instead... You are to come to the table with your brain on, thinking, remembering, and as we'll see in the text, examining. And we'll talk about what that means and what, how we're supposed to do that. But it's an activity of the mind. It's an activity of the soul and the spirit. It's a time when you are very active. You're not just sitting here waiting for God to just come and dump some sort of blessing onto you. You're active in what's taking place. You're active between your ears and you're active in your heart and your spirit. Okay, And then it's also this participation. So there's a doing that's involved. There's a taking of the elements and there's a, there's a feeding and a drinking. And so that has to do a great deal with the symbolism that the supper is all about. If this is a symbolic meal, it's a symbolic thing that we do and we're symbolically feeding ourselves upon our Savior. Now, because we are doing something here, we often ask, well, what sort of bread should we use? What sort of juice should it be? You know, could it be this? How big are the pieces of bread supposed to be? You know, could, could it be a sandwich? Could it be a hamburger? Or could it be, uh, does, does, the, does the juice, could it be alcoholic? Or is it supposed to be non-alcoholic? What, all these sorts of questions can kind of crop up around that. And then, of course, then the question also comes, well, how frequently should a body observe the supper? And if you notice in the text, as well as all the other texts that that address it, all of them are the same. It says simply this, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And so I think that the Holy Spirit has intentionally left that undefined. As he has also left all the other things undefined. Because the Holy Spirit knows our propensity to turn everything into a work. And so he leaves this undefined and just says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Take of the bread, take of the cup. The only thing that we're told about any of those elements is that the cup, we think back to Jesus's night in that Passover meal, and he mentions the fruit of the vine. That's really the only direction as far as the the contents of the cup or the bread or anything. I remember once at our previous church, we had this mix up and somehow on the day when we were coming to the table, the only juice we had was mango juice and we used it and, and it worked. But the only really direction there, fruit of the vine might would say to us, OK, it, it would be wise to, to, to stay with something of, of grapes of the vine. But no other direction is given. I would say this, though, that the thrust of the passage and we'll get here in just a minute. But the thrust of the passage is a direct pushback against a chaotic, irreverential environment in which elements of the supper have been mixed together with normal food in such a way as to completely strip their symbolic meaning. So working from that basis, I would say to us as a church that 
there are a few things of wisdom to keep in mind. The supper should never be turned into some sort of playful experiment. The supper should never be turned into something that is sort of this cavalier, well, we'll do it differently. The supper, it would be highly unwise if the supper were to become potato chips and Coke around a campfire. And all of us have heard of that. It would be extremely unwise if the supper became bagels and coffee at a coffee shop. That would be highly unwise. And all of us have heard of that. And so there is an element of wisdom here. We won't call those things sinful because the scriptures don't. But it would be highly unwise to take those things and make them like everything else, which seems to be an underlying theme with what the Corinthians were doing wrong. So this supper is something that we are shown here is given to the body. It's given to the church. You can count them for yourself five times in the passage. Paul says, when you come together, five times. And once he says it this way, when you come together as a church. So I take his meaning to be crystal clear. This is something that is most appropriate for the body. Meaning it is less appropriate for portions of the body. It's not appropriate for us to come to the table on Wednesday nights when that's typically not a gathering of the whole body. Or it's not appropriate for a Bible study to to take of the supper. It's not appropriate for uh, a, a kid's summer camp to serve the supper. We won't call those things sinful. We will call them inappropriate or unwise. Because it seems to me that the thrust here is this is for the whole body together. Now, there are times in which I have administered the supper to a longtime shut-in or a hospice patient. And absolutely nothing wrong with those situations. But what we're saying is the normative way to approach the table is in the context of the full body together, short of those who are providentially prevented from being among the body. All right. So this sign, this sign of declaration, of remembering and participating is the sign that's given to the body that we think of as the table or the supper. Now, so the second question that we would ask is, well, who is invited to come to the table? Now, I'm going to give just a very, very short answer for this. And then we're going to go to the third question because I believe that if we answer the third question thoroughly, it'll answer the first two thoroughly for us as well. So I'm just going to give a quick answer. Who is welcome at the table? Who is invited to the table? All of those who are the family of God. All of those who are convinced in their spirit that they are regenerate, born again, family of God. It's called the Lord's Supper, which indicates to us it's His table and His family coming to the table. Paul says repeatedly, when you come together, and clearly the context is he's writing to a church. So, The appropriate ones to come to the table are those who are regenerate, born again, children of God. Now, that's not the only qualification, but that's the only one that I'm going to mention right now. Because I really think that when we work out this third question and we answer this one thoroughly, we won't have any more questions about the first two. So the third question that we come to is, 
And this is the big one. This is the one that probably, if, if I were to ask you privately, I would say, you know, what's your biggest concern? What's your biggest question about the table? I would just about guarantee everybody's answer, or most everybody's answer would be this one. How do we come to the table in an appropriate way? And how do we come in an inappropriate way? Because that's the warning of the passage. And quite frankly, it's a stern warning, isn't it? With more time, we would unpack the warning further. But we don't have the, it would take quite a bit of time to unpack that. We're not going to take that time this morning. I just want to say this about the warning. It seems to me that Paul's goal here is to communicate the sternest possible warning he can. It seems like that his, his intention here is to scare them. To say, if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, notice what he says, you're not, you're not inflicting guilt, you're inflicting the guilt of the body and blood of Christ upon you. That warning compares with the warnings in, in the letter to the Hebrews that are so stern and so frightening. Okay, So we get the point, the idea that Paul intends to say to us, coming to the table in an appropriate manner is of utmost importance. So that's what we turn our attention to now. How is it that we come to the table in a worthy manner? So now, as we begin to answer this question, the first thing that we want to see, and this for somebody here in the room, maybe more than one person, for somebody here in the room, this will be the most important thing you hear all morning. Look to the passage and let's notice carefully how Paul phrases this. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of Christ. In the English standard that I just read from, as well as probably most modern translations, I think the King James is not uh, along the same vein, but that's translated as an adjective, right? Worthy manner. What's, what's worthy describing? Worthy is describing manner. Manner is a noun. Adjectives describe nouns. Okay? So worthy is an adjective, except in what Paul wrote. What Paul wrote, that word worthy, is not an adjective, it's an adverb. So I think the King James translates it worthily. Anybody reading from the King James? Is it worthily? Worthily is not a word we use. And so the editors of modern translations are, are attempting to use a word that, that we can relate to more, that we can understand more, and so they've changed it to worthy manner. But the word that Paul uses is an adverb, not an adjective. Now, why is the part of speech important? Because an adverb modifies a verb, not a noun. So what Paul is not speaking against is he's not saying that there are unworthy people coming to the table. He's saying you are coming in an unworthy way. The difference between those two is huge. Because isn't that something that has troubled I think every believer, if you take the supper seriously, have you not been troubled by the question, am I worthy? Am I worthy of the body of Christ? Am I worthy of the blood of Christ? What believer has not struggled with that? But notice Paul did not say if an unworthy person comes to the table, he said, if you come in an unworthy way, an unworthy manner, the word is describing the way that they come, not who's coming. 
And for somebody in the room, that will really make all the difference in the world for the table. If you struggle with being worthy. In the time of ministry that I've, I don't know how many times I've been part of the supper, I mean, very, very regularly, there will be a believer whom I know to be a professing believer that believes in their heart that they are converted and born again. And they abstain. And I don't usually know what may be behind that, what the, what the abstaining from the table is all about. But clearly there's a struggle. Clearly there's something within them that's saying to them that they're not worthy to take of that. What Paul is not saying here is that there are people that are unworthy of the table. He's saying that there is a way of coming to the table that's an unworthy manner. Because it only takes just a moment for those of us who know the gospel to say emphatically, who's worthy of the table? Nobody. And that's the whole point. The whole point is that none of us are worthy of the table. Now, if we do what Paul tells us to do, which is examine ourselves and discern according to the body, discern the body. We'll get to that in a moment. If we do what Paul tells us, here's the irony of the whole thing. The better you do that, the more successfully you examine yourself, the more unworthy you'll feel, which will make your manner even more worthy. Isn't that ironic? That's sort of a paradox, isn't it? If you do what Paul says, you feel even more unworthy, which makes the manner of coming even more worthy. So the first thing to see, Paul is describing the way in which these people are coming to the table. And and if Paul was here today and we were to ask him, Paul, this gathering of the Corinthian believers, obviously they didn't start out on the right foot. What can they do to fix this? Paul would have said to us, that they could change, that they could examine themselves, they could discern themselves, and then come to the table right then. Paul's not describing some sort of thing where you got to go away and you got to fix this thing in your life, and you got to clean this thing up in your life over here, and then you'll be worthy for the table. You'll never be worthy for the table. But what Paul is saying is there's this examination, this self-discernment that takes place, and that is what makes the manner of coming to the table a worthy manner. 